I got a little bit of good news I want to share with my church family before I begin. I do have wife and three kids, Taylor, Isaiah, and Josiah, but God has sought fit to bless me with my first grandchild. My daughter Taylor uh, is uh, having her, her first child. I got the exciting news uh, this past week. So I'm officially be a pop-pop. <laughs> How did that happen? Only the Lord knows, but uh, looking forward to, uh, to the challenge. Uh, funny thing is, is that when, I, uh, when, uh, when Joe first asked me to bring the sermon uh, today, uh, I was more than honored. But then I saw in a bulletin uh, uh, last week that he had my name uh, in the bulletins that I was preaching today. And I went up to him, I said, man, why did you put my name in a bulletin? Nobody's going to show up now. <laughs> I said, man, you know, it's, yeah, you just messed up, man. But we laughed about that. But I'm glad to see all my brothers and sisters in Christ and my garden church family. Not here to hear me, but you're here to hear what God has to say to you today, only through me. I'm just a yielded vessel, sinner saved by grace, uh, man of many flaws. So pray for me uh, as I bring forth God's word today. Uh, let us pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to stand on uh, holy ground, Father God, to proclaim uh, what thus saith the Lord. I do ask you that you just uh, uh, bless me and keep me, Lord God, and bless the ears, Lord God, that's in the congregation, Lord God, that they will hear the word, Lord God, and that uh, my words will be few and few and few, and your words will resonate more and more and more, Lord God. As of this moment, Lord God, uh, shut me down, Lord God, so that you will be seen through me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Let us turn to our Bibles to First uh, John uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, and then we're going to go over through verses uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And then say amen once you have it. Amen. So, some of you, some of us, well, some of us have birthmarks, right? I do. I have a birthmark. It's right on my left wrist. It's uh, in the shape of a little, uh, little bunny rabbit. That's what it looks like. That's what I always call it. Look like a little bunny rabbit. Uh, I was born with this mark, as many of you were born with your birthmarks. It's an identifying mark of who you are. You know, if you get picked out of a lineup and they say, well, this per Tim had a bunny rabbit looking on, the, on his wrist, yep, that's me. So it identifies pretty much uh, who you are. And many people have physical birthmarks. This morning, I don't want to talk to you about your physical birthmarks, but I want to talk to you about your spiritual birthmarks. Amen? All physical birthmarks cannot be seen. Mine can be seen. Some are in places that they just cannot be seen. Uh, spiritual birthmarks, however, are different. They can be and should be seen every day in your daily walk. So, again, I want to title this sermon today, The Birthmarks of a Born-Again Christian. So, a lot of us, we, uh, we, we like Charles said, I, I love hip-hop. Uh, 
at one time I was, you know, every time the BT Awards or Hip Hop Awards came on, I, I turned, tuned in to see who was rapper of the year and who had album of the year and all of these things. I love sports, uh, SB Awards and uh, the NBA Awards, all of these things. We all got, we got the Country Music Awards, all these award shows, right? How many times have you seen uh, the people who have won the awards, first thing they do, they get right up on stage, and the first words that come out of their mouth is, I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How many of us heard that before? Right? I've heard it from Jay-Z to Method Man to, to, to uh, 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 Carrie Underwood to, you know, to, to all the latest uh, uh, sports figures. I've heard it so much, and it got me to thinking, like, wow, all of these people are Christians, born-again believers? Well, it got me thinking about some of the lifestyles that they portray, uh, you know, when they're not on the field or when they're not in a recording studio. And I said, man, it's hard for me to believe that Jay-Z is a born-again believer or that Method Man is a born-again believer or some of these R&B singers are born-again believers. Like, wow, they sit there, they gyrate in their videos, they do all types of things. And I said, is this, they want to thank the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet you don't portray this in any of your music. And it got me to thinking that, why do they do this if they're truly not born again believers? So, uh, and, and recognizing that I see no birthmarks on them at all, like none. None of what they say, not how they live, not in their music. Uh, when they're off the field, anything. So there are church folk today also who masquerade as born-again believers, sadly to say. Uh, churches are filled with them today, who they show up on Sunday mornings, they've got their big hats on, their Steve Harvey suits, or, or today it's the, uh, the European cut-style suit, you know, with the little high-water pants. Uh, but yeah, they show up, uh, even some of our, 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 our uh, gospel singers, that sometimes you got to question, like, are you really, really saved? You know, so, uh, yeah, but there are a lot of church folk who masquerade as born-again believers, too. So, but this particular passage in John deals with sin as a whole. And throughout the whole passage of 1 John, John uh, points to what it looks like to be a Christian. So we cannot, one thing we cannot do is deny our sinful nature. Uh, we must maintain that we, are, and maintain that we are above sinning or minimize the consequences of our sin in our relationship with God. We must resist the attraction of sin, but yet must confess when we do sin. So let's get into the word, and then I'll, uh, I'll get into uh, my message. The word says in 1 John, uh, again reading 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, through 2, 1 through 6, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. In this dark world, God is light. When we walk with God, we walk in light, and, be, and because we are in the light, those around us see our identifying birthmarks of a born-again believer in Christ. My question to you today is, since, belie since believers, we have to walk around in this dark world filled with sin, if light was shed upon us, what would the world see? Let's go back and look at chapter, uh, chapter 1 of verse John again, the very first passage of verse 5 says, This message we have heard from him and declared to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. What this simply means is that God is absolutely holy, he is absolutely righteous, he is absolutely pure, and cannot look with favor on any form of sin. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. One cannot be in fellowship with God, yet walk in darkness. John states in this verse that if we state that claim, he simply calls us liars. He just simply says you are a liar. And there's nothing worse in this world to be called. There's a lot of bad things to be called, but one of the worst things to be called in this world is a liar. That means you can't be trusted. You know, you, out, of, out of your mouth, just comes lies and deceit. So one cannot simply say that if they fellowship with God, if you walk with Jesus Christ, you cannot be walk in darkness. If you stake that claim, then John says you simply are a liar. Do you know that light and dark cannot coexist in the same place? It is impossible for light and dark to coexist in the same place. If we were to turn off the lights in this room right now, it would be what? It would be dark. Well, if we turn the lights back on, it would be light. They cannot coexist in the same place. It's the same way when our spiritual relationship with God. We cannot say we walk in fellowship with God, yet walk in darkness. It is impossible to. So if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with Christ. 
and our fellow believers and the blood of Christ continually cleanses our sins. That's what it says in, uh, in, in, in verse 7. It says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. We just sang a song, was it, was it nothing but the blood of Jesus? We know that blood normally stains something, correct? Once you get blood on your clothes, on the carpet, on your furniture, it's done. It stains. Nothing can purify that. Nothing can cleanse blood, right? Uh, we try with water. We try with all types of solutions. Blood stains. But there's something special about the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus never stains. It purifies. Amen? The blood of Jesus purifies. That is special. That is unique about his blood. You know, uh, in uh, uh, during the illegal uh, uh, trial uh, uh, of Jesus, uh, when Pontius Pilate was uh, was taking was uh, proceeding over the trial, you know, he uh, what he did was he he handed Jesus over to the people, and what he did was very significant. It stands out in my mind. He turned and says and says that his blood is not on me; it's on you. And he turned and he washed his hands in water. Pontius Pilate thought that by washing his hands in water, that he is free from the guilt of sin. Amen? Pontius Pilate thought that water could cleanse him from his guilty stain of sin. Nothing can cleanse you from sin except the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's clearly what the word says. Water cannot cleanse you. Uh, taking a shower, if you sin, people, when they go commit adultery sometimes, and they say, oh, I got to go wash this sin off me. I had to commit fornication. Oh, I got to wash it off me. You go kiss your wife. No, that doesn't work. The only thing that cleanses you is asking forgiveness from Jesus Christ and that blood that cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Nothing can cleanse you from sin except the, purifi the purifying blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? The blood provided God with a righteous basis on which he can only forgive sins. All God's forgiveness is based on the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, that was shed on Calvary. Now, we go into verse 8 of uh, 1 John chapter, uh, chapter uh, 1. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, in my studying, uh, as I got, uh, I, was, I was on a, a conference call uh, with a couple of uh, theologians, as Montrose used to say, I just call them my, uh, my commentaries. That's all they were couple different commentaries out. So uh, me and John MacArthur and a couple of us was having a conversation. And uh, I like MacArthur's point. And it, it, and it opened my eyes to something. Actually, I heard this before uh, through my, my late uh, grandfather. He had explained this uh, to me, and that's why I was able to have an understanding of it. But in verse 8, 
if we look at verse 8, it says, if we claim to be without sin. And then in verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins. We have sin, S-I-N, in the singular form, versus sins, S-I-N-S, in the plural form. These are two different types. Sin, in the singular, in verse 8, refers to our corrupt, evil nature. It is who we are. Sin, in the singular form, S-I-N, refers to our unbelief in Jesus Christ. Right? So we see here, sins, in the plural, in verse 9, refers to the evils that we have done. It is our sins of commission, our sins of omission, it is our sins of thought, our sins of deed, our secret sins, our public sins. Luckily, both sins can be forgiven. It's the sin in the singular form that can condemn a person to eternity without Christ. See, we all sin. We all have commit sins. You know, I commit sins every day of my life because we live in an imperfect world. So we're able to go to God as believers. We commit sins. But once we, since we are in the body of Christ, our sins, S-I-S in the in this plural form, does not commit us to eternity without Christ. We're able to go to God and ask forgiveness for that sin. Our, the sin in the singular form for unbelievers is the sin that condemns them to eternal life without Christ. What we are is a lot worse than what we've done. Say that again. Who we are and what we are is a lot worse than what we've done. Praise God that Christ died for our sin and our sins. Amen? God is faithful in the sense that he has promised to forgive and will abide by his promise. God is just to forgive because he has found a righteousness based for forgiveness in the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is nothing that we have done, nothing we can ever do. In the eyes of God, we cannot bring nothing to him that is good enough. It is only through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that we now can go to God and confess our sins unto him. If we deny that we ever committed acts of sin, then John says again, he says, we deceive ourselves. It's nothing, again, worse than a person who lies, but then it's nothing worse than a person who lies to themselves. Like, okay, you may lie to me. Okay, who am I? I get that. Yeah, I'm nobody to impress. But then you're lying. John says, you, if you claim to be without sin, you're, not, you're, you're just deceiving yourself. You're just, you're lying to yourself. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, I believe, and I've, I've never been, but what, what a drug addict or alcoholic does when they go and to these Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous classes and these drug rehab places, is they sit around, and the first thing they got to do is that they have to commit, they have to verify and commit who they are. They stand up and say, I'm Tim, and I'm an alcoholic. 
In order to address the problem, you first have to confirm the problem. So we see here that, again, if we deny we ever committed acts of sin, then we make God out to be a liar. Yes. <laughs> we all know that that is not true. It is impossible for God to lie. That is a flat-out contradiction of his word that says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Oh, but now, now we, in, we want to get into verse 9. Again, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim to have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and the word has no place in our lives. It is important for us to know that God is faithful. God is just. We, all believers, we do not live in a life that we are condemned if we believe in Jesus Christ. If we mess up, which we all do, it's important for us to go and confess our sins. Be cleansed of that unrighteousness. And God is faithful. He's, and, and don't walk around, once you confess it, don't walk around with that guilt on you. It's no need to. Because if we're still walking around in the guilt of our sin, we're saying, I don't believe God has forgiven me. I don't, I don't trust that God's forgiveness is real. If we're still wallowing around in our guilt, after we confessed it, we have to, be, have, to have faith that, Jesus, uh, that God forgives us through our sins through the work of Jesus Christ. Oh, but now we're getting into some of the good stuff here. In chapter 2 of John, verses 1, it says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus is our intercessor. Right now, he's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for our, on our behalf. You see, God has a standard for his children. That standard is that we will not sin. John didn't write these things and write unto you so that you can sin as little as you can. Scripture says, my dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin. So let's be clear on this point. God does not want us to sin, but he knows that we will because we are living in an imperfect world in an imperfect body, again, with that sin nature. When we all, all as believers, when we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, that sin nature did not automatically disappear from us. It still dwells, it still dwells there within us. It's something that's, have to, there's spiritual warfare going on. You're fighting every day between the spirit and the flesh. War is going on constantly every single day in our lives. So don't be ashamed that you still mess up. I do. I'm flawed human being, imperfect in all that I do. But I'm so glad. I'm so glad that Jesus Christ, 
on my behalf and on your behalf is interceding for, the, see, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. In the very next part of, of the verse, we see God's amazing grace. If we look throughout the whole script, if you look throughout scriptures, you can see God's grace sprinkled all over the Bible. It says, I'm going to read it again just so we can see where God's grace actually kicks in. It says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We see God's grace now uh, kicking in on, on our behalf. It says, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. And I love what this has John, what John calls Jesus Christ has many names, many names. But I love this particular name. He calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous one, because he indeed is righteous. It is his righteousness that was imputed on us. So now that we are justified uh, in the eyes of God. So Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Amen? Amen. Jesus Christ is our ultimate defense attorney. Johnny Cochran, Michael Brown, Warren Brown, they have nothing on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our ultimate defense attorney. Satan comes before God, I don't know how often, but we see it in Job, how Satan comes before God. They call Satan who? His, one of Satan's name is the accuser. Satan is, wants to accuse each and every one of us of wrongdoing. So God allows him access in heaven only up to a certain point. And when Satan comes, he comes with accusations on what we did and who we are. He's constantly accusing me of things that, yeah, I, I've done. I have done. But Jesus, the ultimate defense attorney, says, no, Father, I died for Timmy. Yeah, he might have messed up, but I forgive him. I forgive him. Satan wants to take you down. It's nothing else that he, he already lost our souls. He can't have them anymore. So what he wants to do now is take us down by accusations. But Jesus says, no, I died for Timmy. I died for her. I died for Mr. Charles. I died for Mike. I died for them. And because of that, Lord, forgive them. That is, that is, a ultimate, that is just such a wonderful thought and a true thought to know that we have Jesus Christ fighting on our behalf. That whatever Satan says, whatever he does, whatever he tries to accuse us of, it will not work because Jesus Christ is interceding for us on, the, on our behalf. Amen? Amen? So two believers who are feeling guilty because of sin, John, again, offers reassurance. I just talked about it. Satan called the accuser in Revelation 12.10. 
is demanding the death penalty for us. You have the best defense attorney in the universe pleading your case. His name is Jesus Christ, your advocate and your defender. He has already suffered the penalty in your place. You can't be tried for a case that is no longer on the docket. Want me to say that again? You can't be tried for a case that is no longer on the docket. Jesus Christ has already paid the penalty through his death, burial, and resurrection. That docket is cleared. I'm a free man. Only in Christ. Only in Christ am I free. So now, as we move further on uh, down the verse uh, in, in the chapter, we see here that John verse 3 picks up as, in chapter 2 verse 3 picks up as we know that we have come to know him if we obey him. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what, com what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So now, excuse me, so now we're going to get into the birthmarks or what it likes of how your birthmark should be shown every day in your walk with Jesus Christ. The first birthmark we have is the birthmark of confession. Described in John 1, chapter 5, verses 1, whoever believes in Jesus is, is, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Before you can have assurance of salvation, you had to believe and be saved. You have to confess Jesus Christ is, as Lord. Some people assume that they are saved just because they grew up in a Christian culture or they grew up in a Christian home or they went to church all, they li all their lives or they know a Christian. Oh, I'm saved because I know Tim. Guess what? No, you're not. <laughs> when I stand before God, it ain't going to be me and you standing there side by side. It's just going to be me and it's just going to be you. So you're not saved just because you know Tim Oh, you know what else? Oh, the pastor lived next door to me, so I must be a Christian. No, you're not. Now, if you go when the pastor's on his duty, being intentional, being a good neighbor, and he's witnessing to you and trying to lead you to Christ, and you accept Christ because of what the pastor has, 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 uh, has shared with you, then good for you. But you cannot know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior just because you live next door to uh, Pastor Joe or Elder Art, or Elder Montrell, doesn't work that way. They've gone to church all their lives, or some say, well, I'm a Christian because I was baptized. Baptism does not get you in, into heaven. It's just a symbolic representation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's something that comes along with salvation. Or simply say, how many of all have heard this? I'm a Christian because I live a good life. It was one time I had a good friend of mine who, uh, who, uh, 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 who was a great dude, good dude, man, you know. And I was one day reading my Bible in my office, and he came in. That's your surprise. I didn't know he was going to come in. And uh, that's what I was reading. 
So I was going to read some scripture. And uh, we began to talk. And uh, as we began to talk and the conversation moved more and more and towards uh, salvation and Christianity, I began to find out that what he was saying, he was not a Christian. So at that time, I was led to, uh, uh, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And by the grace and glory of God, my friend accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right in my office. And he said, when he said during the conversation, he said, man, I would have never thought that I needed to do that because I lived a good life. I never cheated on my wife. I raised my kids. I paid my taxes. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I do don't eat anything. I treat people with kindness and respect. I just thought that because I did all the right things that I was going to go to heaven one day. He said, little did I know I was headed straight to hell. Be careful of those who say I live a good life. It's good to live a good life, but do you live a good life in Christ Jesus? That's the difference. The Bible teaches that we all are sinners, separated from God by our sinful nature. We can never earn, buy, or climb our way into heaven. By our own efforts of goodness, we can never, ever be saved. That's why God became a man who lived a holy, righteous life, died on the cross, shed his blood for us, and rose from the dead. He paid our penalty, took our judgment upon himself, and he offers us the opportunity to be born again. Again, there's nothing we can do. Our sin, our sin and our sinful nature separates us from God. As I was uh, preparing for this message, the thought I've had of the separation gap between sinners and God. And this picture began to come in my head as you have this, this, uh, uh, this canyon, this great canyon. Have been to the, how, how many of y'all been to the Grand Canyon, or at least seen what it looked like on TV or something? It's massive. Great, this canyon. And on one side of the canyon, you have God. On the other side of the canyon, you have sinners. And, and we can't get to God. Because there's this great canyon in between us. Our sin and our sinful nature separates us. This canyon represents our sin and our sinful nature. It's a great uh, 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 void there. It's a big gap. We can't not get to God. It's impossible for us. Except for one thing. If you take the cross of Christ, the cross is vertical and horizontal. You put the vertical part deep down into the canyon, and the arms cross this way. Hey, now, come on. We can walk now between the, the cross makes a way for us to get to God, our Father. Sin, our sin nature is covered by the blood of Calvary. It is made a way, Jesus made a way by the cross of Calvary. It's the cross that gets us from this point to this point to God. Amen? Take that picture. Look at that picture. The cross is deep buried down inside, stretched out wide, and we can walk across. Only because of what Jesus Christ did can we get to God. The second birthmark is the birthmark of change. And the first birthmark, and the first birthmark is our confession of Christ. 
as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second is a changed life. As we see in 1 John 2.29, everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. When Jesus truly saves us, it makes a difference in how we think, how we act, how we speak, and how we conduct ourselves. The Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. As we begin learning to practice righteousness, our habits change. We will not be sinlessly perfect. It's impossible. While we're on this planet. But if we're Christians, we need to behave like Christians. If we say we are saved, but nothing has changed about us, something's wrong. Something's wrong. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. And the gospel is a transforming agent in our lives. And, and going back to First uh, John uh, uh, chapter 1 and verse 5, we hear, we, 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 talk, we, we want to focus on light. God, again, this message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness. What is first walking with God refers to our daily lifestyle. Simply as it is. Our walk with Christ is our lifestyle that we show. But the word light, it denotes a natural kind of light. Not an artificial. See, this is artificial light in here. The light that refers to God is a natural light. Natural light shines light on everything. Artificial, a little hazy. <laughs> One of the things I like to do sometimes, I don't know, a lot of y'all may do this. I know I do it all the time. I can't tell the difference between navy blue and black to save my life. For nothing, right? So if I'm going out to get a navy blue pair of pants in my, my closet in a black pair, I, all, I can't look at it in the artificial light in my room. I can't tell. But what I do is when the sun is shining bright outside, I take two pairs of pants, hold them up to the natural light so I can see which one is black and which one is navy blue. That's how I can tell. It's the natural light that, sh that, sh that, that, that shows the truth, right? So uh, God is natural light, not artificial light. A true Christian lifestyle is one of natural light because Christ lives in them. And in every increasing measure, the Holy Spirit reproduces Jesus' death and resurrection in a Christian's life. This process is simply, in the Bible, is called sanctification. It's a process. John here is saying, in effect, whoever keeps on willfully sinning, willfully, habitually sinning, I mean, you sin like it's a habit. You smoke five packs a day, it's a habit. You keep sinning the way you're sinning sometimes, it's a habit. You're violating God's law with stubborn disregard and ongoing wickedness cannot have insurance, assurance of salvation. 
If we are truly saved, we will grieve our sins, confess them, and seek God's grace to do better. His grace is inexhaustible, and his salvation is irreversible. Make sure you have confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and then trust him with your eternal future. If we, if, if we, uh, he will never leave or forsake you. His word was given that you might know Jesus Christ as your Savior and that you might know that you have eternal life. The question today is, you can have assurance of salvation today. The third birthmark is the birthmark of compassion. Those who truly saved also bear the birthmark of compassion. How can you know that you are a Christian? By what you believe, by how you live, and by whom you love. Love is a reoccurring theme in 1 John. And the apostle leaves no doubt about how it permeates the lives of true Christians. Beloved, he wrote, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. One of the first things, one of the things I love about the garden the most is when I first came, I felt love. I felt the love of the brothers and sisters in Christ in this place. And I knew that this was a place that I wanted to worship. All churches don't uh, uh, exude that type of love. I've been in some where it's cold and callous. And nobody walks up to you to give you a hug. Nobody shakes your hand. Nobody asks, how you doing, brother? But in this place, it was different. That love, God's love is truly being cultivated and grown in this church family, and I thank God for that. I've experienced that love. My family has experienced that love, and I'm grateful that you all uh, show the love of God to me and my family. Amen? And to one another as well. I see it every time I walk in. Question is, do you love your brothers and sisters in the family of God? Those who are truly saved are those who enjoy and bless the household of faith, the family of God. The fourth birthmark is the birthmark of conflict. The birthmark of conflict. Say, birthmark of conflict. Yes. The, the fourth sign of being truly saved is conflict. Not with one another, but with Satan. According to 1 John 5, 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The word overcome implies a struggle. Nobody said that when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you became a born-again believer that all of your problems and worries would officially go away. The Bible does not say that in one sentence of it. Not one. Instead, once we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, once we become believers in Christ, oh, you think Satan is happy with that? He lost our soul, so now he's going to ramp up on you even more. 
we struggle with, we're going to struggle with our flesh every day. He's going to come against us every chance he gets. Because he wants to destroy us. So now, a true birthmark of a born-again Christian is you are in conflict every day. Where the spirit is warring against the flesh. At first, the flesh was just living free. Doing whatever it wanted to do. But once you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you instantly entered a battlefield. You, be, you put on the whole arm, whole arm of God and you begin to go to, into a war zone. Because the flesh is constantly warring against the spirit. You are in a Spiritual conflict. That is the birthmark of a born-again Christian. Everything is not, I can't believe I'm going to use this word, hunky-dory. Mm, hunky-dory, boy, if they can see me now. Yeah, everything is not hunky-dory in your life. Everything's not going to be, oh, flowers and sunshine and everything. Once you accept Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, yes, you can have joy. But that joy that you have in Christ, you will still have that joy even in the midst of a struggle. That's a, di- that's a difference. So you're going to be in a struggle. We are faced with, adverse- adverse- we are faced with an adversary whom we must overcome. Our adversary is identified in 1 John 2.14 as the wicked one. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. John went on in the next verses to say, do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father, but of the world. If you notice, we're talking about the identifying marks of a born again believer, children of God. You know, Satan doesn't mess with his own children. You know what Satan reminds me of? Satan reminds me of that parent who goes up to, to the school because their child got into trouble with another child. And the first thing they wanted, that parent wanted to say, or Satan wanted to say out of his mouth is, well, what did he do? My child didn't do nothing. Oh, he, that child caused it. See, he's accusing the children of God. Oh, it was the child of God, not my child. Satan never messes with his children because his children will always do the will of their father. They don't know no better. Satan's children will always do the will of their father because they just don't know no better. He won't mess with them, but he will mess with us. It's his job to mess with us. When you are genuinely born of God, You'll be, growing, you'll be growing into be an overcomer as you deal with the temptations around you. The world, the flesh, and the devil. You may, you may not be victorious on every temptation every time. Let me tell you that say it again. You will not be victorious on every temptation every time. Then we go, that's when we go back to Jesus Christ, our intercessor. But you'll make progress in gaining more and more victories and losing less and less battles as you grow stronger in Christ and the power of the abiding word of God. The fifth and final mark, birthmark is the birthmark of conduct. This leads to the final point I want to make. We can see evidence for the vitality of salvation 
and our desire to conduct ourselves in a way that pleases God. According to 1 John 3, 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. If we're not careful, we might interpret this verse to teach that everyone who was born of God never sins. We know that's not true. That would conflict with other passages in the Bible that describe us as fallible and often failing. In 1 John 3, 9, the word for sin is a present, active, infinitive, and it describes a continuous action of sin. Habitually sinning. Like, you wake up sinning. You go throughout your day sinning. You come home sinning. You go to sleep sinning. It's habitual habit. That's what that word is describing, a continuous action. John is not saying that whoever sins once is not born of God, that would disqualify us all. It would certainly disqualify me. But John is saying, in effect, whoever keeps on willfully sinning, violating God's law with stubborn disregard and ongoing wickedness, cannot have assurance of salvation. If we are truly saved, we will grieve our sins. Confess them and seek God's grace to do better. In conclusion, it is not what men eat, but what they digest that makes them strong. Not what we gain, but what we save that makes us rich. Not what we read, but what we remember that makes us learned. And it's not what we preach, but what we practice that makes us a Christian. When we commit our lives to Christ and thus identify ourselves with him, his death becomes ours. He has paid the penalty of our sins and his blood has purified us. Just as Christ Jesus rose from the grave, we rise to a new life of fellowship with him. And this is my final thought. Thank you, Trell. I know you're going to get me. We already talked about it. <laughs> if you were on trial for being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? Amen. Thank you. Father God, we thank you. Lord, for uh, your word, Father God, we pray, Lord God, that th your word went forth, Lord God, and that uh, we were shown, Father God, uh, what it looks like to be a true born-again believer. And I pray that as the weeks and the months, as the years go by, Lord God, as long as you give us on this earth, Lord God, that the birthmarks of a born-again believer will be shown, Lord God, not just at church, but on our everyday walk with you. We thank you, we honor you, we give you glory and honor today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.